0: Hey everyone, just another quick reminder, I know you heard me say this just a couple of days ago, but I want to remind you that I will be a guest on the Cafe Tanware podcast on July 20th, inshallah. It would be a big favor to me if you would go and subscribe to the Cafe Tanware podcast, that is T-A-N-W-E-E-R, and listen to the episode that I'm on, as well as all the other episodes. It's a great podcast. Let's get into the show. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 5 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this series, we are discussing the events of World War I that led to the partition of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 525, Baku and Transjordan. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Britain finally captures Jerusalem in December 1917, bringing an end to over 700 years of Muslim rule. Russia signs an armistice with the Central Powers and officially leaves the war. Not long after, the Bolsheviks release the details of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Worried about losing support at home, President Wilson announces his 14 points, the American plan for peace after the war. No longer fighting on two fronts, Germany prepares for a massive offensive against the Allies. And with that, let's begin our discussion of the Ottoman invasion of the Caucasus. The Young Turk Revolution It is too easy to blame the Ottoman Empire's failures on the young Turks. One may be tempted to label them as secular enemies of the Ottoman state. But a closer look at their history before the Great War provides some nuance. Not long after Sultan Abdul Hamid II took the throne in 1876, the Ottoman Empire was again at war with Russia. By the time the war was over, the empire had lost most of its territory in the Balkans, the island of Cyprus, and Algeria in North Africa. In the aftermath of this defeat, Abdul Hamid II suspended the new Ottoman constitution and dissolved parliament. He considered them tools of Western influence and preferred to emphasize the empire's Islamic identity. With the loss of most of its Christian territory, the empire was now almost completely Muslim. Most Ottoman citizens went along with their caliph and had no problem with his three decades of autocratic rule. However, the Ottoman intellectuals that had convinced the sultan to accept the constitution in the first place were not happy. In 1889, several Istanbul University students were implicated in a plot against the Sultan. Abdul Hamid unleashed his secret police on his opponents, forcing them to go underground or flee to Paris. Over the next 30 years, the various opposition groups, particularly the young Ottomans, quietly extended their network throughout the empire. But they were most successful in infiltrating the military. Much of this intrigue took place in the empire's Third Army, based in Salonika, now part of modern-day Greece. At the very edge of the Ottoman Empire's domain, Salonika was the perfect breeding ground for these secret organizations. Salonika was unique in that it was the only European city with a majority Jewish population. However, Salonika was rife with anarchist and rebellious fervor. The Kingdom of Greece, which coveted the city for itself, was constantly meddling in its affairs, and Salonika had at least two very active Freemasonic lodges. This was the city that would become the flashpoint for the Sultan's downfall. Salonika's postmaster was a government bureaucrat and Freemason named Mehmed Talat. Mehmed Talat was the founder of a secret organization which merged with other like-minded organizations to form the Committee for Union and Progress, or CUP for short. Mehmed Talat, or Talat Pasha as he'd later be known, convinced Jamal Pasha to join CUP. Jamal Pasha was one of the commanders of the Third Army. Jamal Pasha convinced other soldiers in the 3rd Army to join the Committee for Union and Progress, including a major named Ahmed Niyazi and a young officer named Ismail Enver. In the summer of 1908, Sultan Abdul Hamid's secret police discovered CUP's activities in the 3rd Army and moved in to arrest the culprits. But someone tipped them off and the members of CUP fled to the hills of Salonika. Among them were Major Ahmed Niazi and Ismail Enver. Though they avoided arrest, Ahmed Niazi, Ismail Enver, and their fellow soldiers could not hide forever. At some point, they'd have to return to their bases where they'd be arrested and court-martialed. At some point, they'd have to return to their bases where they'd be arrested and court-martialed. Rather than deal with this, they decided to march to Istanbul and demand the Sultan restore the Constitution. As the members of Cup marched through the Balkans towards the capital, several guerrilla bands of Albanian Muslims joined them. These Albanians were concerned about the weakening Ottoman presence in the Balkans. They believed Major Niyazi and a cup were their best chance at preventing Russian domination. Their numbers continued to grow and they easily overran the sultan's troops. As they closed in on Istanbul, the sultan's cabinet panicked and convened various meetings that resolved nothing. As word spread through the streets of Istanbul, the tide seemed to turn against a sultan. Sultan Abdul Hamid II, now 65 years old, did not want to risk a civil war. On July 24, 1908, he agreed to reinstate the constitution and reconvene parliament. The Committee for Union and Progress, or the Young Turks as foreigners called them, did not take power just yet. They were mostly soldiers and had no stomach for politics. Their representatives remained in Istanbul as an oversight committee to ensure the sultan did not try to regain power. Over the next several weeks, The new parliament passed laws that concentrated power in Istanbul and further secularized the empire. But just like in 1877, the empire's foreign enemies took advantage of its weakness during this transition. A few months after the Young Turk Revolution, Bulgaria, which was already an autonomous province, declared complete independence from the Ottoman Empire. The very next day, Austria-Hungary annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina. And soon after that, Crete seceded from the empire and merged with Greece. These sudden territorial losses turned many people against Cup and the new parliament. In particular, several young soldiers from the Ottoman Empire's First Army were furious the new leadership did nothing to prevent these losses. Unlike the Third Army, the First Army was loyal to the Sultan. In April 1909, several First Army soldiers mutinied against their officers and marched on Istanbul demanding the restoration of the Sultan. For a while, Sultan Abdul Hamid II enjoyed a brief return to full authority. But two weeks after the mutiny, the Third Army arrived from Salonika, occupied the city, and regained control. Three days later, Parliament voted to depose Sultan Abdul Hamid II in favor of his younger brother, Mehmed V. The Ottomans in Libya With all the turmoil within the empire, the Ottomans were helpless against their external enemies. One of its most aggressive new challengers was Italy, a fairly new nation that wanted to create an overseas empire of its own. In October 1911, Italy made up some flimsy excuse to declare war on the Ottoman Empire. Then they crossed the Mediterranean Sea and occupied Libya, the last vestiges of Ottoman authority in North Africa. Benghazi and Tripoli quickly fell to the Italians and there was nothing the Ottomans could do to stop them. They did not have the navy to go by sea, nor the logistics to go by land. The new Ottoman parliament was prepared to let Libya go as just another piece of territorial loss. But then a strange thing happened. The Italians learned that while it was easy to conquer land, it was not so easy to conquer people. Libyan Muslim Bedouins waged a blistering guerrilla war against the invaders. The young Turks, most of whom were soldiers, were not willing to lose Libya without a fight. Ismail Enver, now known as Enver Pasha, volunteered to go to Libya and assist the Bedouins against the Italians. The Ottoman parliament approved and supplied him with the money needed to fund the operation. By the end of October, Enver Pasha and several other Ottoman officers, including a young officer named Mustafa Kemal, were leading the resistance in Libya. The Libyans flocked to Enver's cause, grateful to see the Turkish officers who represented the Caliph. One group, Atorikatu Sanusiya, the Sanusi Sufi order, was especially critical to Enver's mission. This was the same order to which the famous Libyan resistance fighter Omar Mukhtar belonged. Enver Pasha brought the remnants of the Ottoman garrison in Libya and the Bedouin fighters together. Unaware of the politics in Istanbul, the Bedouins were honored to fight for the Caliph even if he was just a figurehead. Enver Pasha used Islam to successfully unite Bedouin Arabs and Turks against the Italians. Enver and his Bedouin fighters were outnumbered and outgunned by the Italians. Yet, They inflicted severe pain on their enemy. Italian troops were afraid to venture from their coastal garrisons. Italian rule only existed along the Mediterranean coast. Thousands of young Italian soldiers died defending a land no one back home cared for and the Italian treasury spent millions fighting against men who lived on less than a dollar a day. Italy knew the Libyan resistance was supported by the Ottoman government. They also knew they could never win in Libya by traditional means. Instead, they used their navy to bombard Beirut and attack Ottoman territory throughout the Mediterranean region. When that did not work, they allied with Bulgaria, Greece, and Serbia and threatened to invade Istanbul. With war at their doorstep, the Ottoman parliament finally backed down. They signed a peace treaty with Italy, gave up control of Libya, and recalled Enver Pasha to Istanbul. Italy's problems in Libya were not over the Bedouins continued to resist Italian rule for the next two decades. The Reality in Jerusalem In February 1918, Great Britain began implementing the Balfour Declaration, their commitment to creating a Jewish homeland in Palestine. A few months after the fall of Jerusalem, a Zionist delegation from London arrived in Cairo to begin preparing Palestine for Jewish colonization. With the Balfour Declaration coming to fruition, the British realized they had a problem. They were supposedly committed to the nationalistic goals of both the Jews and the Arabs. Yet, Here they were about to implement a plan that took land from one set of allies and gave it to the other. In order to make this obvious contradiction make sense, the British needed the Zionists and the Arabs to come to an agreement. Back in London, thousands of miles away from the reality of the Middle East, Most British politicians were confident they could make it work. Amongst them was Mark Sykes, who sincerely believed there was a way to get Jews, Arabs, and Armenians to work together against the Ottomans. But this hope was absurdly optimistic at best and complete idiocy at worst. Most Jews were not at war with the Ottomans. There was no historical animosity between Jews and Ottomans or Jews and Turks. Most Arabs still supported the Ottoman Empire. Only a small number had joined the so called Arab Revolt, and most of those had been bribed. There was historical animosity between Armenians and the Ottoman Empire, but the Armenians did not care what happened in Palestine. Mark Sykes, Lloyd George, and the British Zionists in London were looking at the situation through rose-colored lenses. They gushed about how beneficial Jewish colonization would be for the Muslims of Palestine. They argued the technology and scientific know-how the Zionists brought from Europe would also improve the lives of Arab and Muslim Palestinians. They insisted there was a way for both groups to share Palestine and peacefully coexist. Those British who lived and worked in the Middle East knew this was all a fantasy. No amount of technology and wishful thinking could ever align the interests of Jewish Zionists, Muslim Arabs, and Christian Armenians. They could see the inevitable problems that would arise from taking land from one group of people and giving it to another. The British officials living in the Middle East were hesitant to implement the Balfour Declaration and warned the Zionists to move slowly with their colonization scheme. Chaim Weizmann, the president of the British Zionist movement, arrived in Cairo with the Zionist delegation. While in Cairo, he met with Prince Faisal Hussein, who was leading the forces of the Arab Revolt alongside T.E. Lawrence. Right from the beginning, Chaim Weizmann and Prince Faisal became close friends. Prince Faisal accepted Jewish control of Palestine since he expected to get Syria and Damascus. In fact, Faisal told Chaim Weitzman that he did not even consider Palestinians to be true Arabs, so they were outside his jurisdiction. Faisal's father, Sharif Hussein was a different story. He fumed at the idea of handing Jerusalem to the Jews. This was not what he signed up for when he rebelled against the Ottomans. Instead of a kingdom encompassing the Arabian Peninsula, all he could reasonably expect was the Hejaz. Meanwhile, the Zionists were getting Palestine and his son was evidently getting Syria. Sharif Hussein demanded the British honor their commitments and blasted them for turning his son against him. Needless to say, the British preferred to work with Prince Faisal. Prince Faisal was on the ground, fighting the Turks and leading the Arab revolt while his father was isolated in the Hejaz. Furthermore, Faisal was friends with T.E. Lawrence, who was becoming a global celebrity. The British left Sharif Hussein pouting in the Hejaz, which held no strategic importance for them anyway. They marginalized the old man, keeping him out of the loop and managing the Arab revolt through Prince Faisal and T.E. Lawrence. Prince Faisal knew about the Sykes-Picot Agreement. He knew it promised Syria to the French. But he was confident the British would reward his loyalty and compliance by giving it to him instead, or at least support him against the French claims. Prince Faisal trusted the British. After all, he was just as much their ally as France was. The Turks in the Caucasus In March 1918, Russia signed a final peace treaty with the Central Powers. With this agreement, Russia gave up authority over Russian Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan. Almost immediately after the papers were signed, the Germans and the Ottomans began arguing over rights to the new territories. The Germans were in desperate need of raw materials, having been under a crushing Allied blockade throughout the entire war. Meanwhile, The Ottomans wanted this territory to make up for their losses in the Middle East. The primary focus was the Azerbaijani port of Baku. Baku, sitting on the Black Sea, was the world's leading producer of oil at the time. The Great War taught the world the critical importance of oil and now everyone wanted Baku. The Germans... The Ottomans, the British, and the Caucasus nations were in a desperate race for control of Baku. To get to Baku, the Ottomans would have to go through the new Caucasus nations. To this end, Enver Pasha began negotiating with them before Russia even signed the peace treaty. The Germans responded by sending their own expeditionary force hoping they'd get to Baku before the Ottomans. Ironically, this put the two allies on a collision course that almost led to fighting. Geography favored the Ottomans and gave them a head start in this race. Inver Pasha created an army of Islam recruited from the Ottoman military's best units. Unlike the other campaigns of the war, Inver Pasha refused to bring in any German commanders using only Muslim officers for this special army. Inver Pasha's Army of Islam was the strongest military force of the Ottoman Empire. However, creating it weakened Ottoman defenses in Syria and Transjordan. In addition to Baku, Inver thought he might even have a chance at conquering all of Central Asia. Central Asia was the birthplace of the Turkish people and they shared a common lineage and religion. He believed they would rally to his side just like the Libyan Bedouins seven years earlier. While the Germans and Ottomans were arguing, Armenia... Georgia and Azerbaijan created a Caucasus federation hoping to work through their own differences. But this spirit of cooperation did not last long. Each of the Caucasus nations was divided into various factions, and each faction was supported by different external powers. There were different factions backed by the Germans, the Ottomans, the Bolsheviks, or the Allies. There are also religious, cultural, and ethnic divisions further complicating matters in the Caucasus. Georgia was mostly Christian and culturally closer to Russia. However, it had a large Muslim minority and a strong Bolshevik influence. Armenia was mostly Christian and hated the Ottoman Empire. They would support anyone who wanted to fight the Turks. On top of that, Russia had armed 100,000 Armenian refugees and sent them back to Armenia. Azerbaijan was predominantly Muslim, generally favored the Ottomans, and promised to resist dominance from any Christian nation. This automatically put them at odds with Armenia. Azerbaijan also had a significant Bolshevik presence. Soon after independence from Russia, the tension brewing in the Caucasus exploded into civil war. No one knows who started what and it is difficult to determine the various factions. In time, however, two sides emerged. Muslims versus everybody else. The Armenians and the Bolsheviks teamed up against the Azerbaijanis, leading to the deaths of over 12,000 Muslims. The massacre of Azerbaijani Muslims in March 1918 is one of the many forgotten horrors of World War I. By May 1918, negotiations with the Caucasus nations had broken down, and Enver Pasha decided to just occupy them. This turned out to be a difficult task. Enver's Army of Islam faced stiff resistance from the Armenians and cost him precious time. While a portion of Enver's Special Army was tied down in Georgia and Armenia, Another portion went south, passing swiftly through Persia into Azerbaijan. When they arrived at Baku, the Ottomans realized the British had gotten there first. Like the Germans, the British also sent a small expeditionary force to occupy Baku. The British could hardly spare the manpower for this side mission, so it was as bare bones as it could be. The small British force was led by General Lionel Dunsterville and nicknamed Dunsterforce. Dunsterforce had very few soldiers and was made up mostly of military officers and armored vehicles. The British were hoping to buy the loyalty of local militias to secure Baku. The fighting between Enver Pasha's Army of Islam and Force was known as the Battle of Baku and took place in July 1918. Though the British had recruited local Armenian militias, they were still outgunned by the Ottomans. In mid-September 1918, General Dunsterville decided to evacuate the city. This would be the last significant victory for the Ottoman Empire. The British in Transjordan While Enver Pasha was invading the Caucasus, he was losing ground in the Middle East. Now that General Allenby had Jerusalem, he wanted to consolidate his hold on Palestine by protecting his eastern flank, the region known as Transjordan. His western flank was protected by the Mediterranean Sea and the British Navy. The British stopped fighting long enough to fortify their positions in Palestine. Then, on February 19, 1918, they proceeded to remove all Ottoman forces from eastern Palestine. It began with the Battle of Jericho, which took place about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Within three days, the British captured Jericho and the Ottomans fled across the River Jordan. A month after capturing Jericho, General Allenby ordered an attack on Amman in Transjordan. The Ottoman Empire had a rail line from Damascus to Medina that ran through Amman. So long as they had this rail line, they could continue to bring supplies and reinforcements into Transjordan. Prince Faisal and his Arab rebels sabotaged and damaged the rail line several times. But each time they did, the Ottomans quickly repaired it. The British began crossing the River Jordan on March 21st, 1918 under heavy Ottoman fire. They established a beachhead and began a bruising, methodical push towards Amman. The British had to cover nearly 30 miles of desert between the River Jordan and Amman. Along the way, they captured several Ottoman garrisons and outposts. But Amman itself was heavily fortified, and the rail line allowed the Ottomans to keep pumping in reinforcements. Meanwhile, the British supply lines were stretched thin, as their nearest base was Jerusalem, almost 40 miles away. By April 2, 1918, Allenby called off the assault. And the British retreated to their new front line on the eastern banks of the River Jordan. Allenby tried again on April 30, 1918, this time with a three pronged attack on Amman. He hoped attacking the city on multiple fronts would spread out the Ottoman defenders. However, more Ottoman and German troops had arrived since the first attack. And Amman was even more heavily fortified. Once again, the British had to retreat, losing over 1700 men with nothing to show for it. After this second failed assault on Amman, General Allenby decided to stop fighting. Part of the reason he stopped was to recuperate after two embarrassing reversals. But also, back in Europe, A sudden German offensive threatened to break the Allies. Germany's Spring Offensive On March 21, 1918, Germany launched Operation Kaiserschlacht. Months in the making, it was Germany's last-ditch effort to win the war on their terms. With Russia out of the war, Germany was finally able to bring their soldiers from the Eastern Front over to the West. Three million German soldiers, thousands of pieces of heavy artillery, and hundreds of planes were transferred to the Western Front. The initial stages of the spring offensive, as Operation Kaiserschlacht became known, was ferocious and caught the Allies by surprise. The Germans softened up the Allied front lines with a heavy artillery bombardment. Then they sent in thousands of stormtroopers to break through the lines. The stormtroopers were elite German soldiers specifically trained for trench warfare the German strategy worked. In the first wave of the spring offensive, Germany gained over four miles of territory capturing thousands of British and French soldiers. The initial success of Operation Kaiserschlacht forced the British to halt General Allenby's activities in Palestine and transfer some of his troops to Europe. For the time being, General Allenby had to put his plans in the Middle East on hold. In the next episode, we'll see the Allies' response to the German Spring Offensive and how the Ottomans hold up when Allenby starts fighting again. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash WWI to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a 5-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash History. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of these premium shows. Or, to make a one-time donation, visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate. Special thanks to Brother Zulfi Karsiroj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Muttaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu Alaikum, Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And in this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al-Ayubi, known to the West as Saladin. In this episode, we'll be discussing Nuruddin Zangi's Transformation— But before we get into that, let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. For years, Nur ad-Din's father, Imaduddin Zengi, had tried and failed to capture Damascus. Nur ad-Din took a different route and formed an alliance with Damascus's vizier, Mu'inuddin Unur. This alliance was critical when the European Christians of the Second Crusade allied with the Franks of Outremer in an attack on Damascus in 1148. Mu'aynuddin Unur, with the help of the Zengid forces, successfully defended Damascus. This victory ended the Second Crusade and bolstered Nuruddin's stature among the Muslims. And with that, let's take a look at the Battle of Enab and Nur ad-Din's transformation. The Battle of Enab. With Damascus now a loyal vassal, Nur ad-Din decided to switch focus to Antioch. Christian Antiochian territory was right next to Nur ad-Din's territory in northern Syria. The two territories were separated by an imaginary borderline running north and south between the towns of Haddam and Apamea. Hadam and Apamea were two small, Frankish-controlled territories about 55 miles apart. The northern part of this borderline was Hadam, which sat atop the Belos Hills and was less than 40 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. Most importantly, Haddam was also just 12 miles from Antioch. Apamea formed the southern tip of this Muslim Christian border. Apamea was about 35 miles from the sea and barely connected to Christian Antioch by a thin strip of Frankish controlled territory. Despite previous failed attempts to capture Apamea in the past, Nur ad-Din decided to weaken Antioch and destroy this imaginary borderline. He would begin with an attack on Enab, a small Frankish fort just west of Apamea near the Balos Hills. In June 1149, Nur ad-Din Zengi led 6,000 of his soldiers in a siege on Enab. If he captured the fort, communications between Apamea and Antioch would be cut off.